It is good to be together today with brethren, with people that share the same faith, with our brothers and sisters in Christ and fellow saints and children of God. And it's good to be among friends because I think we're all friends. But there is no greater friendship that we could have in this life or in the life to come than in being a friend of God and being one of God's followers. And we want to be God's friends. But as we think about that, let me ask the question at the outset of our study together today, and that is, can I really be a friend of God? That's what I want us to talk about today, is being God's friend. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of James chapter 2. You may already know where I'm going, and if so, well, we wish you the best as we continue on our quest together. We're glad that you're here, whether you are visiting with us, as Jonathan pointed out, or whether you are normally here as part of our Northfield Boulevard family. We're just so glad to have you here as a part of what we're trying to do in praising our God and being a friend of God. But when you think about being a friend of God, that may strike you as a little bit odd. Now, as Bible students, in James chapter 2, particularly down in verse 23, we know that it is possible to be God's friend. But think about it from this perspective. After all, we've got to argue that God is great. We pray to our great God today. We acknowledged him as being great and awesome and holy and righteous and perfect. And how can I be his friend? How can I have a friendship with the creator who is so wonderful and so great? Yet I want us to use James chapter 2 as a way to outline how to go about becoming the Lord's friend today. Drop down to, if you would, to about verse 21. Was not Abraham our father, and we're familiar with Abraham, one of those great characters of the Old Testament, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. I talk frequently about epitaphs or potential epitaphs that you could have on your tombstone. One of those would be friend of God. I don't even care if my name doesn't appear on the tombstone. Just put friend of God if that's truly what I am. That's what we're trying to be. And James chapter 2, it seems to me, outlines very nicely what it takes in order to be a friend of God. In short, I would make the argument that becoming God's friend is about being like God and trying to represent the various attributes of who God is and what he is about. I want us to look at three things that we must see or do in order to be like God so that we can then be, as verse 23 says, a friend of God. Number one, I must see others like God. We talked recently in one of our studies about putting on the lenses 
that God prescribes for us so that we can see the way that God wants us to see more accurately, clearly, and without partiality as outlined in the first eight or nine verses of our text together this morning. And so we acknowledge that given the fact that God is impartial, we must be impartial as well. Read with me, if you would, in verse 1 of chapter 2, where he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. But you say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You know, this is something that we learn from a very young age. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Remember the next part of the, of the I see a few be nodding that you remember that particular song. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. You see, Jesus shows no partiality. Let me just break here for just a moment and go off of my script of what I had prepared to say because there's something that I think needs to be said. And I've mentioned this across the country in various places. There is no place, no place, no place for prejudice in the Lord's church. And I say that simply because I have been in places where there has been the case where that has been the case. Or more likely, I have heard of places across the country where because of one's race, because of where one grew up, because of where one's ethnicity lied, that they were treated differently. That can't be the case in the Lord's church. We'll not allow that to happen. And, I, and I'm, I'm pleased that this is a church that sees that that's something that red and yellow, black and white, we are all precious in the sight of our Lord Jesus Christ. But according to the Holy Spirit, being partial, whether that be because of one's race or as was illustrated in verses 1 through 4, one's income, that this is something that is wrong. But have you ever stopped to consider why that might be wrong? Let me suggest to you two or three reasons why being partial is such a problem. Number one, being partial or showing partiality means viewing one person as being more important than the other person. And that is dramatically wrong given the fact that Jesus died for everyone. You know, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he made those series of last statements, there's a series of about a half a dozen statements that Jesus makes while hanging on the cross. At no time did he say, I'm only dying for certain people. 
that look a certain way or that make a certain amount of money or that don't make a certain amount of money because it can be reversed the other way. The fact is that Jesus, when he opens his arms up and lays his life down for all of humanity, he truly dies for all of humanity. I must see others like God. Secondly, we need to acknowledge that when we're seeing others like God, that being partial is ungodly at its very core. Go back to verse 5, and I want to reread verse 5 because I think it's a very important verse to make sure that we understand and make sure that we get. He says, listen, my beloved brethren. So he says three different words there that seem to me to jump out. Listen, that is watch out. Beloved, I love you. And brethren, we're in this thing together. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? We talked in our Bible class this morning when looking at Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 2 that when Jesus chose the earliest people to follow him, he did not go to the best universities. He did not go to find the, the highest income. He looked at common men and women and said, do you want to follow me? Because that's what the kingdom is made up of. Remember Jesus famously said when he brought that little child to him, he says, of such is like the kingdom of heaven. Simple people. And so that's good news for you, and that's good news especially for me, because we are simple people who are not maybe academically always gifted like we would like to be. We are not as financially astute as maybe what we want to be, but God says, I can use you in the kingdom. And as we will conclude in our study together today, we will indeed acknowledge there is room in the kingdom for you, for every one of us. Thirdly, being partial is wrong because it makes us like the world. Drop down to verse 6. You have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Another way of saying that, isn't that just like the world conducts itself? And so we need to acknowledge here that in James chapter 2 verses 5 and 6 and throughout this entire context... That so much of what we do as saints is designed to be unlike the world and being partial destroys that effort. And that's why I said a few moments ago that we've got to be very careful that we don't allow any sort of prejudice or any sort of partiality into the Lord's church. Because the moment that we allow that to happen is the moment that we become like the world. And the moment we become like the world is the moment that we lose our distinctiveness, which is, is exactly what God wants us to be. Distinct, different, separate for his cause. I have to see others like God. It reminds me of an old preacher years ago who came across a man who looked like he wasn't doing very well, financially was not doing very well, and physically was not doing very well. And he took the time to help that man time and time and time and time again. And the reason he did so is he simply said to me, he needs a Savior. And I've got to be the one to link him to the Savior. He does not have the Savior. Like we talked this morning, he does not have Christ. And he needs desperate attention because he needs Jesus Christ. So I must see others like God. Secondly, I must love others like God. Come, let us all. Unite to sing that God is love. Many people, even those who are not Christians, are generally speaking kind, loving, faithful.
fair, compassionate people. I mean, the majority of people that are our neighbors and that are our friends are individuals who are decent human beings. But God has not called us to compare ourselves with the world, but rather to compare ourselves with himself and with his son. We won't take the time to go back and reread what our good brother read for us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47. But in those verses, we see that indeed you and I are individuals who, as Jesus outlines in this great Sermon on the Mountaintop, who love our enemies as ourselves and treat them in the way that we would want to be treated. And in fulfilling the royal law in verse nine of the te- or verse eight of the text that we're using here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you were to outline what is the royal law of God, what is God's royal law, uh, or ask someone who has limited biblical knowledge of what is the royal law of the king, you might say, well, you've got to read your Bible, and you've got to go to church, and you've got to pray and do all those things. And those are all important things to do, and don't get me wrong. But here James says, the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, you do well. Verse 9 starts with a big, powerful word, and that is, but if you show partiality, you commit sin. In short, you and I are called to fulfill the royal law in James chapter 2, verse 8. James here provides a strong warning. He says, if you show partiality, you commit sin. And we might look at that and forget the context of James, and for that matter, the majority of the New Testament, and and forget the fact that the Bible, the New Testament, its letters, including James chapter 2, is addressed to believers. This is not advice or counsel that is written to the world. Not that the world doesn't need to hear this particular advice. But here in James chapter 2 and verse 9 where he says, If you show partiality, then you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The fact of the matter is, is a failure to follow God's royal law is sin. And so we might say, well, I, I, I go to church and I pray on occasion and I give on the Lord's day and partake of the Lord's day. do all the things that I'm supposed to do. But if you show partiality, you are involved in sin. And it is the responsibility of each of us to make sure that we treat each other appropriately. Then go down to verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty... For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you're reading from the King James Version, it actually says mercy rejoices against judgment. I seem to like that a little bit better. Now, generally speaking, when we are studying the book of James, particularly James chapter 2, what we do is we make a break here. And we disconnect James 2 verses 1 through 13 from verses 14 through 26. That is, almost always we study James 2 as if it's two different topics. In fact, in my Bible, if you look right here, you can see that. 
It says, faith without works is dead, whereas the preceding 13 verses says, beware of personal favoritism. So apparently, James is talking about two entirely different subjects. Or maybe he's talking about the same thing where we have now divorced the two to make it easier on ourselves. This is one of those occasions where, as good Bible students, we understand that just because there's a break in the chapter or a break in verses doesn't mean that there's a break in the thought. Section one is without a doubt about partiality. We understand it's about how God treats us and how we are to treat others, seeing others like God and loving others like God. And we typically say that section two is about faith and works and about understanding faith. But the two I would argue, and I think you would agree with me, I don't think I'm going to have to convince, very, very challenging here, that the two belong together because the failures in the second half are the result of not understanding the first half. And when you add those two things together, I think you get a better picture of James chapter 2. Which brings me to a third and final thing that we must do and I must do, and that is I must serve God like God. And no, that's not a misprint. I debated this particular point for a period of time because I was afraid it would either one, confuse, or two, misteach. But I went with it anyway. And, I, and so we're going to try it out and see how it goes. If you like it, let me know. If you don't like it, let me know as if you would have liked it. <laughs> how does God serve? Because God is a servant. And I understand that we usually view ourselves as servants and God as the master. In fact, we come to him and pray and we say, you are our master. We are your servants. Rightly so. We are the ones who are in service to God. But we are also in service to each other. Yet it seems to me that God has shown us the perfect way to make us and, and, and show us the way to serve by serving us. And did we not pray to God today in song and say, make me a servant just like your son? Yes, we did. Note, if you would, three observations about service from the last half of the text. You may say, wait a minute, there's still a lot of stuff in James 2 you didn't cover. I never said I was going to cover all of James chapter 2 today. But I do want to just briefly talk about verses 14 through 26, maybe with a little bit of a different slant or a different light than what we've looked at before. I must serve God like God, which means, number one, wishing others well is not the same as doing good for others. Now, we want and we wish for others to be made well and made whole and be filled. But there's a difference between wishing that and doing that. Read with me, if you would, beginning in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And then in verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Let me go a little bit further in this. And the Bible says that those who preach, and for all of us as children of God, that we are to convince, to rebuke, and what's the third thing? in 2 Timothy chapter 4, is to exhort. 
So let me do a little bit of exhortation here. So sometimes we do rebuking, sometimes we do encouraging, sometimes we do some challenging. We do a lot of different things in what we're trying to do in walking together. But that is to say, mature saints not only need to notice the needs of brethren, but they need to look for the needs of their brethren. And let me pay a compliment to this particular church. Not being a perfect group of people, because we all acknowledge we want to improve. But this, in my humble opinion, is a group that needs to be encouraged in the sense that you are not only passively watching for things to come up where you need or others need assistance, but you are constantly looking for opportunities to serve. And that's a good thing. And you ought to be pleased with that. Not to the point where we are now going to be pompous or arrogant, but that we now want to challenge ourselves to do even more. Remember Galatians chapter 6. I love Galatians 6 verses 9 and 10. I love the way that it is worded. Let us not grow weary or let us not grow faint in well-doing or while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know, when I think about verse 10, I think about so many members of this particular congregation. And I think about members of congregations throughout the country that I've met over the years. That rather than putting on blinders, I don't want to see anybody's needs. Please don't let me see that you need any help, financial or time or anything like this. But rather, you take the blinders off and say, I want to see if there's any needs out there. And I want to say that we have our four work groups and our group leaders and their spouses do an incredible job, again, in my opinion, of looking out for the needs of the brethren here and opportunities to encourage and opportunities to teach. And we appreciate the work that those gentlemen do as well as their wives. I'm, I'm convinced that if it weren't for their wives, half the work wouldn't get done. But that's the case with all of us, right? It wouldn't get done if she wasn't there saying, you got to make sure this gets done. But we're so thankful for them. We're so thankful for the work that they are doing in fulfilling, among other things, doing good unto all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Secondly, we must acknowledge that serving God means thinking I am godly is not the same thing as knowing I am godly. And I believe that we can know we are godly. Again, not in a pompous way, not in an arrogant way where I say, look how godly I am. But rather we can know these particular things. Go back to the text and let's read verses 17 through 19 of the text. He says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. But someone will say, you have faith. I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith with my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe, and the demons tremble. But you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is useless or is dead. The fact of the matter is, is God's word provides us to to know the ability to know that I am godly. But that comes with our service to one another. 
Go back to 2 Timothy, which I referenced chapter 4 just a minute or so ago. But 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 says, For this reason I also suffer these things. For I know, not I think, or I sure hope, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed unto him against that day or until that day. And then, while you're in 2 Timothy, go over and read in chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, I have fought the good fight. He says, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. If you want to underline things in your Bible, notice those three very powerful words that are definitive, where he says, I have fought, I have finished, I have kept. And he says, finally, there might be, no, he doesn't say that. He says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. And so I must not just think I'm godly, but work to actually be the kind of godly man or woman that I want to be and God wants me to be. And then thirdly, perfect faith is faith that is demonstrated or faith that is shown. Go back to James chapter 2 and let's read the last couple of verses in our text together today. In verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. It seems to me that this attitude of Abraham can be summed up with two very simple reminders. And it all comes back to service. One, I must serve God when no one sees me serving him. Now, you might say, wait a minute, but God always sees. I know, but you get the point that I'm trying to make. There are times when you are going to do good for others, when you are going to give that ride to someone who needs the ride to the doctor, or you're going to take someone to the store, or you're going to go pick up a prescription for someone, or you're going to go help them with a chore, or you're going to help them financially, and nobody on this earth is ever going to know about it. But the Lord knows, right? And he knows the good that you have done. So we serve God even when no one sees, and I must serve others when no one sees. So that's true when it comes to our service to God. It's true when it comes to our service to others. Because as we'll sing in just a couple of moments, there's room in the kingdom. There's room in the kingdom for those who want to live in accordance with God's will and who are the friends of God. And so can we become the friend of God? Certainly we can. And we all want to be God's friend. And we encourage you to make him your best friend today. You know, you may have a best friend in this life, and that's okay. Nothing wrong with having really good friends, people that you can count on, people that you can talk to. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The wise man said, 
And of course, the greatest of all friends is Jesus. I have found a friend in Jesus. He's everything to me. And indeed, he'll be your friend today. If you're not a Christian, please become one. Or at least consider it and let us study with you and become a friend of God. If you are a child of God, having already been baptized and done the things that are outlined in the scriptures in order to become a Christian, having repented of your sins and you've been baptized, then we want to help you to come home and to be faithful to God again, moving forward in a direction of becoming God's friend more so and more so each day. If we can help you or encourage you, serve you, and love you, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.